Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Lorelai Weissel-Labrizzi. And I'm Chris Delano. Uh, and we are here with another uh, author interview episode. This week we have the author of the Lost Caverns of Ixalan story, Valerie Valdez, here with us. Uh, Valerie, say hi. Hello, everyone. It's great to be here. Uh, it's great to have you on. Thank you for joining us on the show. Um, we love the story. Um, and for Magic fans who uh, might not be familiar with your name, um, do you mind giving us a little introduction, the other projects you've worked on, and uh, then we can uh, talk more specifically about Magic and Ixalan and stuff. Well, sure thing. Uh, so Valerie Valdez, she, her pronouns. I am the author of the Chilling Effect Trilogy, space opera novels. I'm also the author of the space fantasy novel, Where Peace is Lost, that recently came out. And I've got a bunch of uh, short fiction published in various places, Uncanny Magazine, Nightmare Magazine. Um, I've got a story in Fit for the Gods, which is a space opera Atalanta myth retelling. And uh, I've got some poetry up in a bunch of different places as well. And couple of random essays, too. And I am also uh, one of the co-editors of Escape Pod Magazine, your weekly science fiction podcast. Uh, I think that's about it for me. Oh, I also stream uh, video games on Twitch. The kids are asleep. Theoretically, that is when I stream. Practically, my kids are getting older and their bedtime's moving, unfortunately. I've heard that people like video games. Sometimes they do. It's true. It me. Uh, soon those kids will be staying up late and watching your stream uh, when they're supposed to be in bed. <laughs> oh, absolutely. My son sometimes catches the replay of uh, Breath of the Wild specifically. That's the one that he's most interested in. <laughs> one of these days I'm going to actually finish Tears of the Kingdom. You're going to find all the Koroks? Oh, well, absolutely. I just like, <laughs> I, I played through and I like, I stopped because I, I was going to do some more exploring before I did Final Boss and then other games happened and then I haven't gone back. Uh, but yes, I did get all 900 Koroks in Breath of the Wild and I intend to um, get another. I Apparently the reward for getting the Koroks in Tears of the Kingdom is yet another piece of poop. Uh, the exact same reward from the first game, which is phenomenal. Um, just great. That's just that's good game design. Um, but we're not here to talk about Korok poop. <laughs> I think. What? I don't think any of it was in Magic, in the Magic story. Uh, we're here to talk about Lost Caverns of Ixalan, uh, which <laughs> you uh, wrote. And uh, six episodes. And um, so I guess uh, first question is... Uh, how did you find your way to writing for Magic the Gathering? Is Magic an IP you were familiar with before this, or was this uh, kind of your first introduction to the game? So I started playing Magic the Gathering with Revised. Um, I, I, okay, so yeah. pretty recently. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, just like uh, just the most recent set. Um, I, I found cards in, you know, local comic book shop. Basically, uh, I used to visit my dad during the summer. He lives in the high desert of Southern California. And I would file paperwork for him in his office for money. And he would give me, you know, five bucks or whatever. And I would immediately take it to the corner shop, buy a giant Dr. Pepper, play some Samurai Showdown, and then go buy magic cards. <laughs> and uh, that, was, yeah. that was my life. That was my, my summer vacations. Valerie is a child. Uh, so yeah, I was definitely familiar with the IP growing up. I played magic throughout my life off and on. Um, the last set that I... <sighs> let's see. I think the last set I avidly collected was probably Visions. So I kind of mm -hmm. got out of it after a while because money happens, you mm -hmm. know, and um, I had I have some weather light cards. I have some other stuff. But uh, but yeah, like v visions was where I kind of got off the train, but I still have all my cards, still have my black deck. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so so I guess what was it like as a person who played a lot of early magic uh, coming back to the franchise God, we're like 25 years later now and writing <laughs> know, a story right? for it. It was amazing. I mean, if if 
I had told child Valerie, hey, someday you're going to be writing for this. First of all, mm-hmm. she would have been like, you can write for this. <laughs> <laughs> um, they have stories. Uh, but yeah, like it was actually extremely cool because of the fact that the lore is so deep. It's not something that I had kept up with. But once I started mm-hmm. digging into it to be able to write for it, I was like, oh, there's so much cool here. And I want to mm-hmm. be here for it also. Um, so it was it was very cool, very exciting. And I was delighted to be involved. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, magic lore is dangerous um, because if you want 30 year old games with lots and lots and lots and lots of stories and deep cuts and things to explore and learn, uh, it is really easy to just oh, yeah. disappear down a, a wiki uh, trip. And uh, yeah. all of a sudden, you know, way too much about like interplanar monetary system i had so many tabs open and when i was doing <laughs> research for kind of various individual things there there were just so many things that i was like wait is this in one of the books that i can't get the book is it which story might have this information i was just i was fishing around for so many different little details here and there mm-hmm. trying to make sure that i got so much right and that i was able to you know if nothing else, have some pretty fun Easter eggs for people here and there. But mm-hmm. most of the time, it was just like the understanding that there is the weight of history and all this. And and I realized that at some point there was a sort of reboot, I guess. Um, um, yeah, sort of. Yes, yeah, uh, right. There's kind of been several, depending <laughs> on how you define it. Well, like so there, Marvel or DC, been like, right? <laughs> just, there's yeah. been like soft reboots. Mm-hmm. Magic has continued telling. Like, there hasn't been, like, a reboot of the multiverse, but there have been, like, big, like, paradigm-shifting events that, uh, you know, leave a lot of characters behind and some big-time skips and stuff. Oh, sure, yeah. And I'm also a fan of, um, especially, and this is sort of thematically appropriate for this particular set, I'm a fan Mm -hmm. of unreliable histories in in -hmm. literature and in in games and TV and stuff like that. I, I feel like it is a reality of our own archaeological abilities and anthropological studies that we there are things we just can't know we can't we don't have the mm-hmm. records for it we don't have the contemporary knowledge necessary to process stuff i mean we can um, read through for example the limited mayan poetry that we have available to us um by translation but are we going to recognize the idioms that they were using are we going to know the sort of colloquialisms are we going to catch double meanings that they have in that not necessarily because we don't have a perfect representation of what everyone was working with at the time and so Mm -hmm. uh, i feel like extrapolating that to secondary world fantasy type stuff like yeah you can just have unreliable histories within within the world of magic and then Mm -hmm. world the planes the many planes um, and you can play with that and things can change. Uh, you get new information that recontextualizes old stuff. It's a, it's, it's a lot that you can work with. It's malleable. Yeah. That, that is kind of one of the, uh, the through lines for the sun empire in this story is mm-hmm. that, uh, they are, uh, in, in their expedition into the core of Ixalan, they are reconnecting with their ancestors, mm-hmm. uh, the culture that eventually would have spawned them. Uh, and, and there's some of that, hey, this is kind of familiar, but it's like an older version of something we did and we don't understand it very well. Yep. Um, you know, you, there were a lot of, uh, door opening puzzles relating to ancient languages here. Uh, yes. And so, uh, it's cool to see some of that. But, uh, I, I, I do want to skip, is it our last, our second to last question? Uh, because just a good segue into it, uh. There's a lot of discussion in the story about like who gets who who has the right to tell these stories. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of conversations between Contorius, the archaeologist who's not from here, mm-hmm. um, and various local peoples, even within the plain. Yeah. Um, and so uh, this is kind of a recurring theme in his little part of the story. Um, so. Uh, you might talk about a little bit about like, hey, hey, what drove your thoughts uh, in in making that such a prominent theme in this story? Yeah, I mean, it felt like something that made a lot of sense when you have one of your main characters is an archaeologist um, and mm-hmm. he is an outsider to this uh, plane. He is here for ostensibly the express purpose of 
of doing archaeology. He's here delving mm-hmm. into uh, the coin empire that he's trying to find more evidence of, and he's heard there's some here. And so he's bringing his own uh, expertise because he studied this, right? You know, he mm-hmm. was a Strixhaven. He was Lorehold College. This is this is something that he is trained to do. He has the uh, schooling for it. He has the magic for it. And mm-hmm. so he is uniquely equipped to be your sort of Indiana Jones character here uh, going along on this trip. But he, again, he is an outsider. He is someone who, for all of the expertise that he has, he is still not part of the culture that is being delved into here. And in some ways, you know, the, the people of the Sun Empire and the people of the core, even though you have one who is sort of the ancestor of the other, uh, they are still different people, right? And so mm-hmm. in, in a way, yeah. they also are not going to necessarily be able to tell each other's stories, especially since they're all still around. Because that's another one of the things about archaeology that I think is different from you know, the fantasy version of it. Uh, Quinn mm-hmm. has... Quint has literal magic spells that he can use to say, summon up an echo and talk to him. Uh, yeah. he, he, his mentor literally is a ghost. You wake up a ghost and you talk to the ghost and you get the ghost for, you know, impressions on everything that was going on at the time. And while not necessarily going to have reliable narrators there, um, it still is an ability that we don't have in our mm-hmm. world. We cannot summon up the ghosts of the dead and talk to them and uh, channel them and get get their stories. And so I think there is a sensitivity that is necessary. And it's something that uh, in our world, in the real world, uh, we are dealing with a lot more. And it's it's something that in archaeological communities, it's being discussed. It's being you know handled with greater or lesser sensitivity. People are trying mm-hmm. to kind of do things in a better way than they were done in the past because of course Mm -hmm. in the past you had uh, archaeology depending on where you are the region the people involved I'm looking at you, the British Empire, going to call you out, going to throw you under the bus. Um, A lot of what happened was you had people just rolling into various ruins and digging up treasure and taking it back home and displaying it or selling it off. And it was definitely a, a very not good approach to the whole thing. They still have a lot of stuff in the British Museum that the cultures they essentially stole it from would kind of like to have it all back, but they're being really cagey about doing that. And so these are conversations that are ongoing and it felt appropriate to also have sort of corollary conversations. You can't have the exact same ones because of the fact that you've got magic that you can literally Mm -hmm. talk to the people who were involved. Um, And also the cultures that are being delved into, they're not dead. They're not gone. They're still there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is not like us digging up Etruscan pottery. This is literally the, the people are still there. Um, and so I just – I wanted to bring some of the thoughts, some of the ideas, some of the conversations that are happening today into this story because it felt thematically appropriate to the various characters that were involved. And, you know, the the characters who are reconnecting with their own histories as well as this outsider character who is an observer but uh, with, like I said, the sort of specialized skills to observe in a an active and mm-hmm. um, methodical way, I guess. So, yeah, I wanted to bring that on there. It's a very natural feeling in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that a lot of people notice because we a lot of people are like, hey, this is like very relevant to mm-hmm. modern day and like <laughs> contemporary conversations happening in a magic story. But it doesn't it didn't feel like someone was like, I'm going to put this in the story because I want to talk about it. It felt like this is a natural progression of what the story should be doing. Yeah, yeah. because. Yeah, that was that was Quintorius and his relationship to this world he's on. And Mm -hmm. it's it is absolutely in keeping with his character. And this is also I I mean, we've had Quintorius in other stories, but this was his debut story as a planeswalker, which was really, really fun. This was our first time getting to see him go off plane and interact with people outside of Strixhaven. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is not a question on our list, but I am just curious what. Like when it comes to writing Quintorius uh, and writing him as a planeswalker, like how was that? How was getting into Quintorius as a character? I loved him so much. Like I loved him in the mentor Yay. story. I read through, yeah. I read back through all of his Strixhaven stuff. Like I, I tried to really get a feel for his voice, for his character, for who he is and, and how he acts and reacts and stuff. And I feel like um, 
Various planeswalkers seem to have extremely different relationships to planeswalking. Um, mm-hmm. You have you have characters who are I'm not going to say hostile to it, but um, oh gosh, I can't remember her name, but um, the one who is like connected to the Blind Eternities and she just gets kind of randomly stuck places, kind of thing. And oh, uh, the Wanderer, um, the Wanderer. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> she doesn't um, have a name. <laughs> yeah, well, no, she no, does, exactly. but we're well, not allowed to know it. She is the Wanderer, though. Like that yeah. is yeah. So we we call her that. So. That is kind of not a great relationship to planeswalking, um, but you have uh, – I felt like Quint would love it. Quint is like, yes, mm-hmm. I get to see new places. This is exactly what I want out of life. I get to go places and meet people and learn new things. And it just seemed like he would, of all people, be extremely interested and eager and involved in doing the thing. Um, even though the the trauma of the Phyrexian War is still kind of upon us and we're, we're recovering mm-hmm. from it um, – I, I felt like he just would be super into it and have a great time. And and uh, I kind of brought that vibe with him then into yeah. the story. <laughs> yeah, I, I love Quintorius. I uh, I wrote a lot of his flavor text for the original Strixhaven set. Oh, uh, so good. And so I had a lot of a lot of fun um, with him. I, I really liked these kinds of discussions about storytelling in this story um, kind of as a uh growing point um Mm -hmm. given that quintorius's like big story moment in uh strixhaven is discovering his own people's yes history uh and so now like he's gotten to do the that thing with his own culture and now Mm -hmm. he's exploring other people's culture and and how does that different how does that compare and contrast with his previous experiences yeah uh where where does he feel that responsibility so i really i really liked uh, um playing up a lot of those different things uh like i i know there was a detail about um uh that you wrote um about him uh about some faculty questioning his ability to lead the Xantafar operation because yes. he was a Loxodon. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And so uh I, is, I like a lot of those moments thrown yeah. through his kind of arc in this set. And that is unfortunately a thing that you will hear from some mm-hmm. archaeologists. I mean, I did not invent that as a concept. It is a a an unfortunate view that some folks hold that it's like, no, 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 but you are too close to the thing. You cannot view it objectively. It's like, my friend, no, <laughs> no. That's not how science works. No, it's not how any of this if, works. If we're missing so much context about the day-to-day lives of people we also can't view it subjectively so yes. like why yep or objectively why why wouldn't we want people who have a, a subjective view of it to be able to explore it yeah like it's yeah. And then one yeah, one of the potential pitfalls then of archaeology, anthropology and all the, you know, kinds of studies, sociological studies is that uh, if you are an outsider then you can start projecting your own ideas and experiences mm-hmm. and modes onto whatever it is that you're you're researching and examining. And yeah, certainly I am not trying to imply that everyone involved in in those fields is doing these things because no, I mean they're working hard not to, honestly, like um, that is part of your your training ostensibly in the field is that you are learning how to not do that. You are learning how to do all the things well, correctly, using the best methodologies available to you, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not here to pretend that, you know, archaeology is a terrible science and everyone who does it is bad or wrong. It's because it's not. Like they're trying. They're working on this. They're developing these methods. This is something that they've been working on for a long time. It's it's you know a process. We we learn. We grow. We iterate. We we get better. Um, and at the same time, yeah, I wanted to. Uh, it, it's it's interesting to try to locate Quint in that sort of greater conversation. Uh, mm-hmm. Where where is he? Yeah. And where is Strixhaven? And where are all of those kind of academics located? Yeah. Um, in in the conversation within the secondary world. Yeah. Well, especially with Strixhaven as like you know the biblioplex. Uh, claiming to have you know every recorded spell in the multiverse yeah. stored there, store stories from everywhere mm-hmm. stored there. Yep. Uh, and uh, yeah, no, it was it was, it was really really good. Uh, I really like that. Um, God, Quint's fun. I love him so much. Quint Quint is though only one of the the many many characters we get to explore in the story. Um, there are one thing I really appreciated, and I brought this up a lot when we were discussing the stories, is the way that you approached it through multiple points of view. 
Um, I love when that is done really well and you did it really well. Like that is one of my favorite things when I'm reading a story. I love getting multiple views. Um, sometimes it doesn't always work, but in yeah. this case, I think it was like super effective for the, the mm -hmm. story that we were getting. Um, so what like inspired that decision to take the Lost Caverns of Ixalan story and say, I'm going to take all these different perspectives and write from them so we get all these different views on what's happening. So part of the inspiration was certainly the original Ixalan stories, which were also told from multiple perspectives. And yeah. so I wanted to bring that same vibe in because it seemed appropriate. Um, in the same way that in the original stories, you have all the people trying to find Oraska and it is that kind of you know race to the city mm -hmm. that is going on. Um, in this one, it is the race to the core. And so it's, it's a parallel sort of narrative. And therefore, it made sense to have the POVs of the different factors Actions as they were attempting to get there. And uh, in terms of which character POVs ended up working their way into this, um, initially I was oh, I was going to have um, – I wanted to have two POVs per faction. That was sort mm -hmm. of the, the overall idea. Um, and so I knew that I was going to go, for example, um, back and forth between Quint and I actually wanted to have um, Waita as sort of the other main POV character. Mm -hmm. But it became clear that actually having Huatli in it was a good idea too. And so, you know, that got added in. Uh, in terms of the, <laughs> the pirates, uh, it's pretty much just Malcolm the whole time, which is fine. I feel like the pirate oh, story... Why? <laughs> does something happen to the rest of the pirates? <laughs> no, everybody's doing great. They're all having a wonderful time. They're feeling really good. Don't eat the mold. I'm sorry. I'm playing. Con <laughs> I'm playing control right now. So don't eat the mold is like a very uh, integral part of that video game. But anyway, um, <laughs> I just started playing control, so I'm not that far into it. <laughs> oh, when you get to the mold, you'll remember this conversation and think fondly of breaches <laughs> and Malcolm dealing with their issues there. Um, but yeah, so that one uh, was fun because it. It starts out as more of a mystery, right? And so mm -hmm. the other characters are kind of in, involved in their explorations. They're looking for the thing. But Malcolm is like detectiving. He's just here going, what is happening? What is wrong? I'm being sent on this mission to figure this out. I, you know, I wasn't even supposed to be here today. <laughs> like he's he's ready to go back to his ship and just heck off. But no, here he is. He has to be in charge of stuff because the problem when you're competent is that people start giving you more things to be in charge of, more responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And that's that's what happened to Malcolm. Um, Vraska's gone. No one knows where Vraska is. I don't know where Vraska is. I want to know where Vraska is, as do we all. But um yeah, so he he has to basically take his buddy, and they have their buddy their buddy road trip <laughs> to figure out what the heck is going on. And that one I knew was just that was going to be that all the way through. Um, mm -hmm. And then when it came to the vampires, I wanted to have Amalia as a character in part because I felt like having an outsidery sort of perspective again for yeah. that particular group was going to be helpful. There's a lot of political stuff happening with them, a lot of mm -hmm. religious schisms that are occurring right now. Um, the, it, that the place is a hot mess all the time, but it's it's, <laughs> it's growing hotter, and mm -hmm. uh, and so I wanted to have a character who is new to the mess um, and is only just beginning to learn. It's, her her entire arc is basically wait are are we the bad guys? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She 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 is the are we the baddies, Jeff? Yes. Um. um so. I I feel like that is a useful arc to have for a colonizer, frankly, mm -hmm. uh, while the rest of them are just being terrible. Um, yeah, because, it's, yeah. I, I really liked, um, you know, there's there's the kind of naivety of her perspective uh, balanced with the like the utterly merciless savagery of Vito's perspective. Uh, and then I think we had like one section where Bartolome gets to take over before he gets murked. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, as kind of the weird middle where like he's doing bad colonizer things, but also he doesn't want to go on like a religious crusade. Yeah. He wants to do like normal, regular, chill 
um, colonialism. Um, <laughs> you know, just I just want to yeah. kill colonialism. <laughs> you know, I think that is oh, so. But that is an interesting thing that happens with colonialism, right? And so you have the different kinds of colonizers. You have the colonizers mm-hmm. who are the religiously oriented colonizers who are trying to spread their religion. They are trying to convert the native peoples who are clearly inferior and don't understand how awesome and cool their god is. Yeah, colonization is trauma. It is a fact. Um, and so it and, and and I so I wanted to throw, show those sort of different things. You have the colonization of religion, and that is one form of uh, and it, it can it can amount to genocide, unfortunately, which is a terrifying and horrible thing. Um, I, I, I'm using a lot of understatement here. I just want to be clear. Colonization is terrible. Genocide is terrible. These are all terrible things. But again, in the mm-hmm. context of the story. So I wanted to have the religiously motivated colonizer. As far as I'm concerned, Bartolome is a, is a an economically oriented yeah. colonizer. Yes. Yeah, yeah. he's here word. representing the Queen's Bay Company. Exactly. So they're, they're kind of like the East India Trading Company. Yes. Um, they are the ones who want to extract resources. And, yes. Uh, but you know, in in his brain, he's just like I'm, just like a merchant businessman. Yes, serving exactly. the queen. I don't want to like annihilate everyone who isn't a vampire. I'm just like trying to make some money here. It's bad for business to kill everyone. I mean, come on, you have to have some people that are working for you, right? Where are you going to get the cheap labor if you kill them all? Well, it's it's one of like the insidious things about imperialism and, and oh, colonization yeah. as like yeah. a method of imperialism is that eventually uh, over enough time and through enough trauma, it just becomes a job to some people. Absolutely. Yeah. And we, we lose sight of the fact that like, oh, that is like oh a very God. terrible thing to be doing. Oh, that everyone- is an awful job. Everyone, please watch Andor <laughs> and see how just very normal office politics happen in the freaking isb yeah and Ah. and so bartolome to me is like yes he is a colonizer participating in this this horrible way that the the you know vampire empire uh which is a great combination of sounds um (laughs) is is functioning but also like as readers and as people we sort of do have to look at him and go for him this is a job and he's really become detached from everything that they're doing yeah in a way a hundred percent and i also think that having... it doesn't earn our sympathy so no. much as it does earn our our uh, in a way like our empathy of like oh we we have to recognize like he doesn't realize no one has educated him I, and and at the same time, I feel I think that um, there is. I, I'm trying to remember a quote, and it's going to escape me. So I'm going to paraphrase very poorly. But it, it's easy to um, villainize colonizers as a sort of mustache twirling villain, like Vito is mm-hmm. in the story, where he yeah. is just he is just wildly villainous. He is clearly uh-huh. throughout this entirely devoted to his cause. He's a complete zealot, and as far as he's concerned, every single casualty is in service to his his cause. Whereas um, Bartolome is the much more insidious face of colonization where you have Mm -hmm. a guy who seems actually in some ways quite nice he's very thoughtful about taking care of amalia he Mm -hmm. is not super duper into the self to the sacrificing of people but you know he lets it happen um until he doesn't but even then it's kind of like oh i think this is maybe going off the rails and this and and i don't want this to continue but did he think he was going to die in that moment was he really sure of that Eh, i don't know that i'd call that a sort of like darth vader self-sacrifice sacrifice and now everyone should feel good about him he is the he is the insidious kind of colonizer where this could be anybody this could be anyone you know this could be just the guy next door um but that doesn't mean he's okay that doesn't mean he's absolved of all of the the problems that he has caused that doesn't mean that he is without sin um and that doesn't mean we should feel real good about him as a character well it's it's similar to me with amalia in Mm -hmm. the sense that amalia is sort of an unwitting participant because mm-hmm. no one has actually shown her what they're doing. No one Absolutely. has ever actually educated her. She is living this life uh, separate from the actions of the the people who she is currently employed with uh, or was employed with now at the end of the story. I think mm-hmm. um, I think she's tendered her resignation. Oh, yeah. Uh, but you sit and you look at Bartolome and think if he was younger, if he was in Amalia's position, could he have been that person? Mm-hmm. 
and we and yet we don't we don't know and we can't know because ultimately he yeah. did grow up and integrate sort of properly quote unquote into the empire yeah. and into the service of um, the the meat grinder that is that is the dust empire and in terms of Amalia's arc and her characterization like I have her written as a very sentimental kind of character and part mm-hmm. of that is I I know a lot of people who grew up in extremely fundamentally religious groups and um, mm-hmm. we we remember as we do mechanically speaking the vampires of Ixalan are black and white they are religious zealots but they are also bloodsuckers this is the way um and so amalia as a character i wanted to represent a kind of experience i've seen these you know homeschooled fundamentalist christian people who find the internet and realize there is a whole big wide world out there and they've been lied to their whole lives and Trying to disentangle from that, trying to get out of that is a whole process and it's fraught, it's complicated, it's painful. There's a lot of guilt and shame involved in it. Um, but I wanted to sort of mirror that in fiction because I think it is, again, uh, something that is happening today uh, in, in primarily in the US, which is where we have all of this kind of fundamentalist Christian stuff going on. But uh, it's a journey that it seemed would make sense for a character within the Dusk Empire to have, mm-hmm. um, given the fact that they are, again, it's it's black and white cards. They have this very religious society, very big colonizer mentality. Um, it, it made sense to me that someone wrapped in the, in the cocoon of all of that would grow up thinking that it was good and right and proper, only to leave that cocoon and realize, oh gosh, this is actually a giant hot mess and I am the bad mm-hmm. guy. Yeah. Um, mood. Uh, <laughs> and then what do you do with that? And then what that. do you do with that? Like that is that is the mm-hmm. next step, right? And I think that that is something that um, it's useful for fiction to grapple with because it's not just that recognition, that moment of, oh, no, mm-hmm. I am the bad guy. But it's then what? Then what do you do? Then you have to stop being the bad guy. Then you have to start being a good guy. Or you're Bartolome and you've decided that, no, actually, I'm just going to keep doing the bad things and you don't get out. Well, I, I think Bartolome uh, made a decision to uh, not make any more decisions. Yeah. Um, he's, well, he's I, gone I, now. Yeah. Bye-bye. <laughs> so it's yeah. over. He doesn't, he doesn't get a chance to you know grow and develop, which is honestly yeah. probably fine. Yeah. Um, but... I, I do have a place in my heart for Bartolome just because I do look upon him and think, had the world been different, mm-hmm. maybe he would have been different. Yeah. Uh, but unlike someone like Vito, who I think is just rotten to his very core, mm-hmm. um, I hated Vito so much in these stories. <laughs> yes, great. I, well, good. I, you should. I wanted to punch him so bad. He was so despicable. Yeah, and I, I, I loved it. <laughs> I, I love stories where villainous culture is not the word I want to use Faction. I'll just settle on faction where a villainous faction has a lot of complicated internal politics. Yeah. Um, We are uh, my RPG group and I are currently playing a, uh, a mech game and our, our group of, of fascists um, have a council of demigods. Um, and not all the gods support the fascist empire, but mm-hmm. all the demigods do. <sighs> but they all want different things. Right. Uh, and it's phenomenal. Um, everybody hates each other. Uh, there's so much infighting. It's great. Um, and so uh, that, that, that is uh, one of the things uh, I, I really liked about the Dusk Legion perspectives. Um from your stories is is that we got to see kind of those gradients of gradients isn't the, the word uh the stratification of um the evils yeah uh, and how they clash uh and how they are not um you, you know even the evil empire is not a monolith they are complicated and uh it, it's a lot of rich world building um uh for the set as well 
Because we get, we get a, a lot of good deep perspective into what's going on with the Legion of Dusk. Yeah, I, I think there is a danger in believing that any evil empire is a monolith because then it allows mm-hmm. us to kind of distance ourselves from their yeah. humanity. And I think yeah. that that's mm-hmm. not a good way to go. Um, e- you're, everyone you're... watch Andor. <laughs> Every, yeah, no, everyone watch Andor, truly, like for sure. Um, because it's just great and it, it delves into a lot of those same questions. And, mm-hmm. and it also, I think one of the great things about Andor, which I have not finished watching, but I, I really deeply want to because it is doing a great job. Um, it, it shows you how revolutions are slow. They're mm-hmm. complicated. They're difficult. They are um, not all in one direction like it's not a con you know a steady stream of progress and then you win uh it's also not we blew up the death star and now we win um mm. revolutions are are arduous they're painful and they don't always work and that's really one of the most painful parts of uh the acknowledgement of that is you can you can want to change things from the outside, from the inside, from any side, but sometimes you have to accept that you don't have the ability to do that. You can try to work mm-hmm. together. You can try to, you know, build up a groundswell of support and and do your best. But um, unfortunately, it, it just it doesn't always work. And then what? And then what do you do? Um, you you got to figure it out from there. So sp- speaking of how awful Vito is, though, um, <laughs> I. I think one of the very first things in the story that stuck out to me and made me me go, oh, this is some good, good stuff, uh, is when we got to see the sacrifices from Amalia's point of view and then also from Vito's point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, two different events, but we mm-hmm. got to see them through two different characters' points of view and mm-hmm. understand how these two characters functioned and worked in the story. Um, and there's a lot of times in the story where we're seeing if not the same exact event, at least the same like cluster of events from different points of view. Yeah. Um, particularly when it comes to like, as things are culminating and it's like, Oh, we're going to hop over and see how the vampires are viewing this. We're going to see how the sun empire is viewing this. Um, we're going to see how these individual players in those groups are viewing this. Um, and I wanted to know like what thought process went into who is going to witness which events, who is going to be part of, like whose point of view are you going to establish as these people are going to see this happen? Um, for example, like one of the big ones is when Inti dies and when Vito dies and how Inti's death is seen through the eyes of Vito and Vito's death is seen through the eyes of Hotley. Yes. And I always thought that was a very interesting choice to make as like who, which characters are watching this because very easily Watley could have watched Vito kill NT, and then we could have had Vito's point of view as he's killed by Watley. So why why did you choose these characters? And if you don't have like a strict answer, maybe just we could talk about picking points of view for different things like that. Yeah. So POV is um, <laughs> there was an adage I, I uh, participated in the Viable Paradise workshop. Um, several years ago and one of the sort of received bits of wisdom from that workshop was POV fixes everything. Um, Mm -hmm. POV is the lens through which you view the world. POV allows you to hone in on which details are going to be important to which characters. So for example, Quint is looking around with an archaeologist's eyes and seeing, you know, the the different um, sort of relics and paint colors and artwork mosaics you know what he he's looking around and he's seeing things um, from that kind of I'm cataloging everything perspective um, mm-hmm. uh, whereas like Waita is gonna be seeing you know she's a soldier she's gonna be looking around and seeing people. Um, what are the people doing? Are they armed? Are they not armed? Where are the exits in the room? What are my options here? Can I flank? Can I not flank? You know, like, like she's going to be perceiving things in a different way. Um, and, and so POV allows you to make choices on what you're going to be looking at in a particular scene. And POV also gives you interiority that is different. 
It gives you the ability to show the thoughts of the people who are involved in that situation. Because I'm doing sort of a close third-person POV, so I am getting into the head of the individual character who is the POV for that scene. You're getting their thoughts, their reactions, you know, their their fears, all of that stuff. Um, so when it came to, for example, the scenes that you brought up, um, I wanted to show Vito in his sort of moment of triumph, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so the death of Inti for him is a high point. It is a triumphant moment. It is I have you know killed the seneschal of the sun, and uh, I I am on the cusp of victory. This is it. I'm gonna win. But then Vito's death, on the other hand. I wanted to show it through Wadley's perspective because I wanted her to be the agent of his destruction. And I wanted her to have the sort of power and, um, you know, again, the interiority of that scene. I wanted to show how she felt about what had happened to her cousin. I wanted to show her moving from feeling, um, again, just very like strong and we're going to win this to, oh my gosh, I have just lost someone extremely important to me. And so I felt that the emotional gravity of that moment worked Mm -hmm. better from her perspective because uh, we needed to see that. We needed to see her feelings. We needed to see her win in the same way that we needed to see Vito win uh, in his scene. Um, and I think that that is sort of a, a useful thing to have characters do. It's like you you give the POV to the person who has the most agency in a scene. Um, and so if it had been Huali just watching um, Vito kill her cousin, you know, out from the outside, she had no agency in that. She couldn't do anything about it. And I do show like a quick kind of recap of her seeing it so that we can feel her powerlessness, but that's a different, a different thing. Um, and Uh then having Inti be the POV character in his own death, like he didn't have the power in that scene. He was the victim. And so to me, it made more sense to have the perpetrator than be the POV character there. And so that is, um, it's not a rule of POV. You can have observers, you can have a lot of different ways of approaching it, but, Often I feel like whoever is the agent acting, like the the person who is doing the most thing in any given scene is the Mm -hmm. one who should be your POV character. And that's kind of what I aimed for in general. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's incredible way to put it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, uh, One one of the things I talked about a bunch when we were uh, recording our episode, uh, recapping the stories and stuff is uh, how strong and diverse your pov writing is uh how much of the um description uh and and action and focus uh shifts with each character and how strong that is and how effective you use that in the story it's uh very very good and fun to read (laughs) and uh it makes uh as someone like me who has linguistic processing issues uh it makes it easier to day on track of who I am reading about in a moment because the sections are just different yeah. feeling uh, and it's great. Thank you. I, I did my best. <laughs> what other questions were on our sheet? <laughs> uh, I haven't really been looking at it. Um, I mean, we, we do have one very light question. Yeah. Uh, just something light I question. was curious about. Um, <laughs> of the major factions of Ixalan, and now I'm not talking like political factions mm-hmm. of like you know, various parts of the Legion of Dusk and all of that. I mean, just broadly, merfolk, dinosaurs, vampires, and pirates. Assuming all things are equal, which faction would you want to jump into? Who would you want to be a part of? Oh, that's a tough one. And of course, transformations are also available here. You can be a merfolk. You could be a dinosaur if you wanted to. I don't know. I feel like overall I'm probably most merfolky. So, um, like when I play Mass Effect, I'm a paragon. When I play D and D, usually lawful good. <laughs> I'm just I'm very basic. <laughs> I just <laughs> I don't know. Um, and I feel like for all that there are complications and factions within the merfolk community in a lot of ways. Um, to me personally, they feel sort of the rightest of all of the different <laughs> groups. Like mm-hmm. um, they feel most in tune with their environment uh, in a lot of ways. They mm-hmm. uh, value 
their own sort of history and community and the ecology. And I am definitely very strongly attracted. And I know that it's ironic to say that given that they did not even really get a POV in this one <laughs> because um, there were only so many POVs we could handle. And for this particular story, um, they – because this is again a like race to the place kind of story, they had already basically gotten there first, and so it mm-hmm. it actually felt sort of strange to put them in as a POV. It didn't seem like it would make sense, and we only had so much word count to work with, and so ultimately yeah. that was unfortunately the group that that sort of got cut out. Um, but but overall, I definitely am very strongly uh, into into the merfolk. Um, I think second place would probably be the dinos. I mean, I don't. I've I've never loved vampires. Sorry, it's they're, they're all right. I, it's funny to say that as someone with a black deck, but um, it, it's just I don't know. I'm I'm not I'm not there. <laughs> no, I, I I understand completely. It's. I threw vampires in there because they had to be one of the oh, four, no, yeah, you know. Yeah. But at the same time, like I can't imagine anyone who looks at you know uh, Alta Torazan is like I would love to be there. I think that's who I want to be with. I think I think there's <laughs> a certain kind of person that um, is attracted to a group that has like a dark and light side, and I think there is an appeal mm. there that um it's it's the kind of people that not not the ones who want like sparkly vampires certainly but the kind of people who want maybe more like magic the uh, vampire the masquerade kind of uh vampires Mm -hmm. where there is that sort of complicated relationship with your own vampiric nature and Mm -hmm. you know the as it's as it's mentioned in the story there is ostensibly like oh well we're actually really good and and holy vampires and we only feed off of criminals and um yeah unfortunately who is the criminal who gets to decide Mm -hmm. who's the criminal oh well, once you start chasing that down, things get a little uglier, don't they? Um, but I, I can definitely understand the kind of person who is – and again, that's part of what Amalia is here, is like the kind of character that if you're a more wholesome type who is into vampires, this is what would appeal to you, right? It's it's the, no, no, we're on a holy crusade. We're just trying to make everyone have better lives, and it's the gift of immortality, and we use it wisely, and we, we mm-hmm. only feed off of criminals, and it's a very Pollyanna perspective on all of this, that mm-hmm. it just is not real. It's not real. Well, I personally want to be a pirate. I think they have a lot of fun. <laughs> Wait, hold, hold on. Are you saying magic story is not real? What? No, I would never. Also, pirates, uh, they're a little too chaotic for me. <laughs> I just, I, no, but I loved writing them though. Like that, mm-hmm. um, writing Malcolm and Breaches was a total delight. I feel like of the different factions that I wrote, that may be the one I loved writing the most, honestly. Nice. So it was just pure chaos. Yeah. I, I, uh, I also really liked a lot of the details you put in for Waita's backstory, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. being the two young soldier who enlisted because she thought, you know, I'm I'm going to join this big important fight, uh, and then it turns out the Firex invasion not too great for anyone. No, uh, and going off and being a pirate, and then coming back and being a soldier, and just yeah. all of that being piled onto her teenage shoulders, um, and uh, it was it was a lot of good. Uh, it, it gave her an interesting perspective compared to the other sun empire yeah yeah and and that's something that she was introduced in the first series as well um she meets wadley and is like oh it's you you're so cool i want to be you when i grow up and Mm -hmm. it's that very beautiful moment of like oh that is so sweet turns out when you grow up and you want to be a warrior in a war oops it's actually really crappy and it's a story that (laughs) you know we can find almost the identical story throughout history in in various cultures. And it's something that when I was doing research for this, I was delving into a lot of different, you know, war poets and reading war poetry and really kind of getting involved in that. And 
Um, you have a lot of uh, Mexican war poetry that's really cool. You have the corridos mm-hmm. that are like Mexican um, war songs, basically. Uh, they're they're like ballads more more than than war songs, I guess. But they often recount different uh, historical figures and battles mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, so you have a really uh, great deep history there. But even going back farther into other stuff and and going down into Central and South America as well, you have a lot of different great poets there. Um, You have like Mm -hmm. your Pablo Neruda, you have um, Miguel Hernandez, uh, you have just there's there's a lot of, of really great options you can look at. Federico Garcia Lorca was a Spanish poet, not a South American. He was involved in the Spanish Civil War, but... Um, and, and then you can also head over to like World War II, World War One. You've got folks like Wilfred Owen. There are just, there, we have a vast, vast history throughout the world of war poets who, um, either write about the wars in which they are involved or, um, write poetry that is sort of meant to distract them from it. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's, it's really cool to yeah. dig into the history of war poetry and into the, the biographies, the lives of the people who were writing that poetry. Um, mm-hmm. and some of them were more distant figures writing about it from, you know, parts of, of the country that were not integrally involved in conflict in that moment. Um, some of them were exiles who were writing from a different location entirely. They went to a different country. Um, and some of them were just on the ground in the trenches. And you, um, especially a good contrast would be, for example, like Wilfred Owen, as opposed to um, some of the other war poets of, of Great Britain and the British Isles at, at that time, talking about war as this sort of glorious thing that um, you're you're defending your country and you know it's it's uh, the the quote that is used in the most famous Wilfred Owen poem Dulce decorum es pro patria mori it is it is sweet and just to die for your country and he his entire poem is just this horrible meditation on what it's like to get hit by nerve gas and mm-hmm. people just fumbling for their gas masks and watching your fellow soldiers succumb to this horrible neurotoxin and just die in front of you and it's it's terrible it's brutal it's the worst and to me like it's not that Huatli is not engaged in the front lines and is not fighting and is not you know getting hecked up but in a way she's mm-hmm. the officer and so she is yeah. a little bit you know apart from all of that stuff whereas what it does in the trenches she is on the front line she is she is the one digging the trenches she is the one sitting mm-hmm. there throwing the gas can back you know and and watching the people around her just die get completed get whatever you know and and i wanted to have that dichotomy have the two different characters both poets but both representing very different experiences of the wars mm-hmm. Yeah, that absolutely definitely comes through uh, in in both of their sections. I, I could sit here and talk about Wilfred Owen and Siegfried uh, Sassoon for oh, like, yes. ever if we wanted oh. to. Um, but we are we are in like inching towards our our end moments of these pod of this podcast. Whoopsie um, uh, we we have reached the oh crap wait we have to finish this thing at some point. <laughs> Sorry, we do have to wrap it up, show. and I I want to start earlier than we normally do because these endings do tend to to last a a while especially (laughs) when we have wonderful guests on um so i guess one thing i do want to ask uh i always love for our guests to have a moment of self-promotion um but i also do want to ask if people really loved this story about ixalan and the characters um not only something that they could read of yours that you want to promote that you think they would like but like, what are something? What is? What are some things that you read that helped inspire you that you think other people might be interested in? Oh well, definitely dig into the war poetry. There are just there are so many mm-hmm. options. Uh, if if you if you track me down online or even uh, here in your wonderful Discord, I can drop some cool links. Um, I, I've I've got a, a repository and. Um, in terms of other stuff, I mean, I I was watching Andor honestly at the time. Another. Uh, uh, terrible film you know i say terrible let's put it in quotation marks um but aguirre the wrath of god Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. Uh um absolutely uh it it, it was something that i watched uh, as as research for this particular uh story 
And that is a film about a Spanish conquistador who ruins a lot of lives. And, you know, spoiler, he freaking dies. as he, Including as his re- own. Oh, he, like, really badly. Oh, why yeah. does the name Aguirre sound so familiar? Gee, I, could, I, feel I can't like we, imagine why. I feel like we heard that name somewhere. Maybe recently. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, that, that is another uh, useful touchstone for this, this particular tale. Um, trying to think of other stuff. Uh, if you haven't read Rebecca Roanhorse, definitely check out um, some some of her novels. And who else can I pull up here? Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, for for my stuff that is probably most similar to this, uh, where peace is lost, is my space fantasy novel that just came out in August, and that is a uh, we'll say it's a post war story. It's it's a refugee from a war who is in hiding um think sort of an obi-wan style character like way back in the first movie where you know the war is lost and you just go hide on a backwater planet although of course then everything gets retconned and suddenly Tatooine is a bustling hive of commerce and villainy and uh, it's it's not a backwater planet anymore but um but yeah, that that is a that that is a novel that also kind of deals in the aftermath of war and a character who is a soldier and is dealing with all of these post-traumatic stress disorder problems and what happens when the empire is still empiring all over the place as they do and you have to deal with the the remnants of empire and mm-hmm. um you know, figure figure your life out. Hiding doesn't work. Hiding doesn't make empire go away. And uh, that is sort of the journey that that particular character has to go on. Um, and then I also have a story in Uncanny Magazine uh, called In Time, Weed May Break Stone. And that is another story of a sort of former soldier who tries to go back to normal life and ends up having empire come back for her too because empire is just only people alone. That's the nature of Empire. They suck. Yeah. I'm starting to think that war might be bad. You what? You know, they, they're always asking, what is it good for? And uh, I feel like the answer is <laughs> absolutely it's nothing. It's usually cool robots. But uh... <laughs> there are cool robots in these stories, too. We also do have <laughs> there are, <laughs> there are that cool is true. robots. Sahili be making cool dinobots. Listen, mm-hmm. I'm here uh, for it. <laughs> Well, uh, do we want to do we want to start wrapping up and, and heading into our final thoughts uh, yeah. before we? Yeah. So the last thing we do on any episode is we we share our final thoughts, uh, which is can be totally unrelated to anything magic, can be unrelated to anything we've talked about on the podcast. It's just what we're thinking about this week. Uh, so Lorelai, do you have a do you have a final thought? Um, all week. I was thinking of a final thought that I was going to have. And believe it or not, here we are at the moment for me to say it. And I don't remember what it was, <laughs> but it's like right there. So it's hard to think of another one. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> You've had two weeks to, to prepare a final thought because we weren't oh, on last doesn't. week. No, no. I was like literally thinking about this earlier today. Hold on. It's right there. I'll figure it out. Well, well, I'll go ahead and share my final thought, which I yeah. think is very related to some of the conversations we've been having about Empire and, and the death of Empire. And uh, Henry Kissinger died, um, <gasps> finally. Uh, and that's carried me through my whole day. Woo-hoo. Uh, it's, you know, I would say anyone listening to this podcast who felt any sort of sadness at the loss of Henry Kissinger why are you listening to this podcast? Search, like, I'm genuinely sort your curious. life out, mate. Sort your life out. <laughs> because when you want to talk about the horrors of war and the traumas inflicted by colonization and imperialism and all of the terrible things, including genocide that happened in our in our world, uh, Henry Kissinger, buddy, he's he, he had his hands in all of it. And he is uh, thankfully uh, resting in hell um, where he belongs. So... It's just been a nice feeling. It's nice to have woken up in a world without his Henry Kissinger today. It feels good to outlive him. Yeah. It's started wondering if that was going to happen because he was not. <laughs> yeah. <leaving. laughs> he was not dying. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> have you have you figured out your final thought? Are you? No, I haven't. I, can't, I don't know what it was. Well, 
Uh, I will also say that I thought it was fun that Godzilla minus one came out the same day that Henry Kissinger died. Uh, so good on, you, good Godzilla. on Godzilla for killing Henry Kissinger. I'm excited. I'm excited. So uh, this episode's going to release uh, and I will be when people are listening to this episode on the day it releases, I will be seeing Godzilla minus one. I'm very excited. Uh, Jay said very good things about it. Uh, everyone I know who has seen it, who has talked about it, has said very good things about it. I'm excited. Um, we'll, I guess, just leave that as my final thought. Valerie, do you have uh, a final thought? Which, saying your name reminded me that my roommate, who is also named Valerie, saw Godzilla Minus One last night and said it was her favorite Godzilla movie and she has seen all of them multiple times. So oh, that's, that's a big, big endorsement. Yeah, but no, people, you... people are saying unreal things about it. I'm excited. Anyway, sorry, continue. My final thought. Well, today is the last day of National Novel Writing Month, which I've been participating in for Shoot, many years. I knew years. I forgot something. <laughs> uh, so my final thought is, uh, oh my gosh, it's almost over. Thank goodness. And also, <laughs> I'm. it doesn't mean I'm going to stop writing tomorrow. But for the listeners who are coming to this later, you're free. Be free. November's over. You can shave now and do other things that you maybe weren't doing during November. And so... It's the end. You're free. Be free. And um, my other final thought is, but seriously, where are Jason Fresca? Where are they? Find them. Somebody find no, no them. No comment. I just. Um, <laughs> oh, I know what the thought. So, ah, uh, <laughs> no, I remembered and I'm going to do this because this is I can do this. Uh, uh, <laughs> so I started playing um, uh, an indie RPG uh, called Chain Echoes came out December of last year um, by a, uh, a German dev uh, who made an RPG maker, uh, and it's kind of a love letter to the to the mid '90s JRPGs like Final Fantasy VI and and Chrono Trigger and crap like that. Um, excellent, excellent so far. Uh, it's very funny. There's almost a um, there's almost an Earthbound style wit to some moments. Ooh. Um, but it's got really cool mechanics. Uh, the music is phenomenal so far. Uh, I'm having a good time. Um, I'm playing it on Switch, but I think it's on, like, most of the platforms, uh, these days. Um, Chained Echoes. It's a lot of fun. Uh, there's mechs in it, too. They, there's magic, and there's mechs. And, like, as someone who's currently playing Armor of Stir with my RPG group, this is just great. It's great. More more mech things should have magic in them. More magic things should have mechs in them. Uh, that's that's the rest of my final thought. Anyway, see, I wrapped up the cool robot thing. <laughs> well, if we're going to talk about cool robots, I'm going to do a plug for Girl by Moonlight, which is a Blades in the Dark yes! style RPG. Yes! Everybody should play it, and you can play the mech one. Uh, we actually, we, we did the... Uh, um the sort of the dream version thing we uh -huh. did a playthrough of that it was super duper fun so girl by moonlight everybody go grab a copy also uh, yeah, uh, yeah. sea of stars is another game that is out mm -hmm. um i've been watching some folks play it and it looks also deeply fun a la chrono trigger and other old school mm -hmm. rpgs um chrono trigger the best final fantasy <laughs> uh yeah no i i i backed uh girl by moonlight um i have the book the, the book it's the book's very pretty it's so good uh, it's good good to play good fun to play yes definitely fun Excellent. if you awesome. are if you are a blades I, in the dark loving kind of person it is yes. like what if blades in the dark but more feelings blades in the dark by uh -huh. way of like uh the new shira yeah so uh why, yeah and uh one of the things i really liked about it is that it brings in the um the kind of the darkest self mechanic from yes. um uh Avery Alder's game, uh, Monster Hearts. Yes, um, yes. Uh, and, I, and I thought that was a really cool addition. Uh, I I love Forge in the Dark is like my favorite TTRPG love. system. I think big love. Um, we played uh, we played Beam Saber a couple of years ago because uh, cool robots. Yeah. Um, and uh, oh, I'm so excited that you mentioned that. I, I'm 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 very excited. Our, our I really want our group to play it at some point. Uh, and some of them are feeling a little antsy because, like, we don't know a lot about magical girls as a genre. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. No. And also, yes, you do. So much of it has permeated. Have you watched any anime in the last 30 years? Congrats. <laughs> you have absorbed 
a large part of the genre in some fashion. But like any Sentai stuff, like you can you can definitely yeah. pull in a lot of different uh, things into it. And then the one exactly. that we played was very like serial experiments lane. So mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you got yeah. options. <laughs> Do you remember yeah. earlier when I said our, our endings tend to go very long? I do. Um, what? <laughs> yeah. are, you, are you trying to tell us something? I don't I'm just <laughs> I'm just trying to to stop Lorelai from two hours of talking about uh tabletop role playing games uh and have us maybe do our little closeout and tell people about all the great ways that they can get in touch with us and join our Discord and things. Yeah, I it's great. I don't I don't need to do a segue if Chris forces me to mention that <laughs> uh, you can head to patreon.com slash the Vorthoscast and support us all today. Uh, if you do, everyone gets access to our Discord community where Vorthos is from around the world are um about to get our first look at Murders at Karlov Manor, by the way, uh, December 5th, which is going to be the day after this podcast releases. Um, so we've actually been pretty quiet on the preview front uh, for a bit now, and we are going to get a little bit about our new Ravnica set. It's really cool. I'm really excited for it. Um, and then... Uh, keep talking about we actually have a lot of people talk about cons of tarkir because it's about to hit arena um so a lot of people have been reminiscing which has been nice um but we have a wonderful little community that we would uh love for you to be a part of um and uh we're we're just gonna end this episode uh valerie thank you so much for coming on the show it was wonderful talking to you uh it was wonderful getting to read your stories uh i love them and uh I, I hope you have a good evening. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And also shout out to Pons, which was not written by me, but is so freaking good. Oh, yeah. We talked about that last episode and it's so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Miguel is so talented. Yeah. Remember the thing I said about I really love when like villainous factions are really politically complicated. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Miguel gave me everything I wanted out of political complications. Dinobots forever. Dinobots, uh, Dinobots forever. forever. Dinobots forever. When are we getting Miguel on the show? You got to get him on because honestly, <laughs> like for for all that, you know, I can take the credit for writing a lot of this. It, his story chops, his ideas, his guidance absolutely permeated everything. And so all props to Miguel, like amazing, amazing work. Great to work uh, with him. M- Miguel is wonderful. I, I feel bad that I mentioned Armorister and Beam Saber. Uh, play Lancer too. <laughs> That's Miguel's game. Um, all right. Thank you all for listening. This has been the Vorthos cast.